Hello, this is Bobby Floyd, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. And hello once again, Royals fans. I'm glad you're along for another edition of Clubhouse Conversation. It's Davo on the place where we catch up with all your favorite current and former Royals players with the most in-depth chats you'll find. And today it's Bobby Floyd who joins us on Clubhouse Conversation. He played for KC from 1970 to 1974. Bobby Floyd, a guy who grew up in El Segundo, California and knew the Brett family very well. We'll talk about that. From there he went to UCLA and eventually signed with Baltimore, came up with the O's, and then the Royals made the trade that brought him to KC for Mo Trabowski, and he was able to spend a number of years in KC and has gone on to a long career managing and coaching in professional baseball, uh, most recently and currently in the New York Mets system. And Bobby joins us now on Clubhouse Conversation. First of all, thanks as always for your time. And second of all, how's everything going with you? It's been outstanding. It's been a good summer. Um, you know, I've been doing a lot of traveling, visiting with family and seeing friends and, uh, and doing the baseball thing. I've Worked for the Mets and have been with them now for 30 years and uh, been going around to our different minor league teams and watching them play. Very fun. So, yeah, you're, you're still doing the infield instruction, right? You know, roving pretty much? Right. Yes, I am. Uh, infield and uh, work with the, the bunning and, you know, write reports on the players evaluating and, you know, just basically whatever needs to be done and whatever issues that they, they want me to deal with. And you went to the Mets a good year, didn't you? 86 was a good time to head on over there. Right, I've been with Seattle for nine years and uh, went over to New York, and uh, they had spent five or six years really building up their their system, and all culminated in the, the season of '86 and uh, the World Series. And it's always fun to be in a World Series, no matter where you're at. Yeah, hopefully we'll see you guys back in one soon out there. I've always liked the Mets. So now you're a guy who played with both Kansas City and Baltimore, obviously. So I'm assuming last year's ALCS was probably interesting for you to watch. I mean, how exciting was it to see both your you know former teams playing last year? Oh, it was really good. You know, it's, I know Kansas City's been through many years of uh, uh, of struggling for years, and Baltimore's had some good and bad through the years. But uh, to see them both playing in the uh, in the playoffs, I was saying it was a lot of fun. Uh, people say, "Well, who are you?" Uh, rooting for, and I just tell them I just want it to be a good series, and I thought it was a pretty good series. Yeah, especially for Kansas City, right? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. Ended up well. So, I mean, we'll go back and we'll talk more about uh, Baltimore and Kansas City, your, your days there and all that good stuff. But before we do that, let's go all the way back then. So growing up in El Segundo, California, Royals fans obviously are going to know that name because of Ken and George Brett. You attended uh, high school there, and I know Ken was, what, four or five years younger than you, but did you happen to know him or hear of him when you were growing up? Or not until later. Oh, definitely no. We, uh, you know, it's a small town. It's my, uh, it was a town of about twenty thousand people, and kind of very isolated. Not isolated in Southern California. It's hard to do that. But on on the north side, you had the airport, and on the south side, you had the Standard Oil refinery. And east of El Segundo was all the aircraft manufacturing plants. So it was really a a really small town within uh, the large area of Los Angeles. But no, actually, uh, 
Kenny and uh, Bobby and John and George all grew up about two blocks from where I, I was born and raised. And, uh, you know, we knew each other from, oh, probably 12 to 13 years old on. Of course, uh, uh, George is 10 years younger than I am, so he was he was just a little kid running around getting in the way all the time. <laughs> yeah, that, and you guys have become teammates later, which is pretty cool. So, you know, more about your childhood then. So, I mean, where did your love for baseball come from, and then were you a pretty big Dodgers fan growing up? Actually, uh, the Dodgers, when I first uh, yeah, I was probably dating myself here, the Dodgers were not out in L.A. at the time that uh, that I was becoming interested in baseball. The uh, uh, They were still in Brooklyn, and oh, uh, the Yankees okay. were the big team on TV all the time. So I was kind of a Yankee fan back in those days, and uh, I, I had an older brother, and he got involved in baseball, and, and my dad was involved in it, and I think it just started at a very early age, and, and you'd have to know the community out there. It's a tremendous uh, sporting community. Uh, some of the, and I tell people, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood where uh, Bobby and Pete Bethard were the uh, football uh, family, and and uh, my best friend was Keith Erickson, who played in the NBA for uh, 12 years, and uh, Scotty McGregor was not too far away, Daryl Cousins, the umpire. So we had quite a, a group in, uh, in a small, little, tiny area that, you know, you always measured yourself against. So it was really easy to to really get involved in sports and, uh, you know, to try to excel. And, you know, when you, you played neighborhood games, if you, if you didn't have the ability to be on the level of a Kenny Bett or a Keith Erickson, you had to learn how to play the game and, and uh, be smart about it. So I kind of was in that, that category a little bit more than the uh, athletically gifted uh, those guys were. Yeah, hard work, you know, makes good things happen. It did for you as a senior in high school, by the way. So you lead El Segundo to a Southern California baseball championship, and that allowed you also. So you played in this, uh, it was a CIF City All-Star game in L.A. I'm assuming there were some pretty good players in that? Right, there was, yeah. Uh, Paul Blair was in it, uh, later a teammate in, uh, in uh, Baltimore, and uh, quite a few other guys, Paul Shaw, uh, Ronnie Woods, uh, you know, some other guys that played in the big leagues, uh, by the time they got around to that game, Bob Bailey, who was probably the, the top player in Southern California during those days, uh, had already signed for a, for a huge bonus, so he was not in it. But it, it, was, a, it was a good game. In those days, uh, they picked two players to go to New York and play in what they called then the Hearst game, and uh, they got to play at Yankee Stadium. Uh, I think Paul Blair was one of the people chosen, and you know it was quite a... Quite a thrill to be around a lot of the better players in Southern California and to play in a game like that. Now, you also were the quarterback on the football team as a senior for El Segundo High School. So, I mean, did you have any interest as a, as a you know, or any looks as a college quarterback? Uh, I was a really good uh, player in, in the fraternity games. Yeah. Uh, no, I did not. <laughs> I uh, unfortunately for me, I was a, a one year behind Pete Bethard, who was kind of like one of the all-time. Uh, great quarterbacks to come out of Southern California and, uh, you know, people would compare us and there was, there was no comparison. He, he went on to become a star and an all American at SC and then actually got drafted by the chiefs and, and, uh, uh, wound up going to, uh, eventually to Houston and playing there for 10 years in the uh, NFL. He was just a, a great quarterback sideline. He probably would have been a outstanding major league catcher if he had stayed with uh, baseball, but he, he chose football and, uh, you know, he's, he's done very well, uh, did very well with his career. So Ed Burke gives you the chance to sign with the Phillies out of high school, but you decided to go to UCLA for a couple of years. But then Ed obviously moves over to Baltimore and is able to sign you. But, I mean, going back to high school, was that an easy decision, you know, to go to UCLA out of high school? Well, it was for me. I, I was not a uh, uh, 
you know, physically strong person at that time. I, I was like six foot and 160 pounds. And at that point in time, I, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to play college ball or go professional. And uh, once you sign, then the choice is taken out of your hands. So I knew that if I, I went to UCLA, back in those days, you could still sign. You didn't have the draft and you could sign pretty much at any time. So I, I figured it was more of a, a, a no-lose situation and that I could go, and if I decided to sign, I could do it. But uh, that was the right choice for me. I, I, I think I would have struggled coming out of high school and, and going to play professional, and uh, I just feel the two years that I spent at UCLA, uh, I played in a college league during the summer, which is in South Dakota. Uh, in those days, it was a, an exceptional uh uh, professional run organization. The team that I, I played on was, uh, was all sponsored by the Orioles. The Baltimore Scouts, uh, recommended players to go there. And, uh, it was just a very, very competitive league, kind of what the Todd League is nowadays. But uh, on the one team that I played on, we had, uh, Jimmy Palmer was on it, Jim Lomberg, uh, Merv Redman, who was later a teammate in Baltimore and the roommate as well as Palmer. And another uh, player, Carl Morton, who wound up becoming a pitcher and playing in the National League. Uh, so off that team, five five of our players all played at the major league level. So it was a tremendously competitive league and kind of gave me the, the feeling of what it was going to be like once I got to uh, pro baseball. Now, did, what were you studying in college? What would you have done if you wouldn't have done baseball? Uh, that, was a, that was a good question. I think I have a lot of people that are wondering what I was studying uh, I, I wasn't the best of students. I, I always felt like I knew that if I didn't do well in school, I could always play professionally, which is not a very good uh, attitude to take. <laughs> but uh, I started off in business, went to uh, psychology, and, and uh, you know, just really didn't have uh, a mind for education at that time, which I, I regret. I, I really regret. And uh, one of the things that I've done when I've been with the uh, – Mets as, as a field coordinator when I talk to kids and sometimes I have to release, had to release players and I would definitely try to get them to understand how important it was to go on and finish their education and wind up with that and, and we made stress that with, uh, with all our kids growing up and, and uh, my wife has her master's degree in psychology. I have two children that are attorneys and uh, my oldest son is a, uh, a cybersecurity professional so they've done well and uh, their education has been very important in their minds. Yeah, totally. Well, so you end up signing then with Baltimore, like we said. Uh, I'm assuming that was a slam dunk, easy choice? Yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> kind of one of the ironic of, of the whole thing was when I, uh, as being a Yankee fan, I was always interested in playing for the Yankees in Yankee Stadium. And uh, I had opportunities with other ball clubs uh, back, in the, back in those days. And it came down to, really, in my mind, uh, between Baltimore and, and New York and in those days, the Yankees were always in the World Series, and I thought, wow, you know, to get to the big leagues with the Yankees would probably be difficult. And with Baltimore, probably be a little easier because they were not uh, a very strong organization at the precise moment that I signed. And so I chose to go to Baltimore, little, little knowing well that within the next three years they were going to be one of the best organizations in baseball. <laughs> and uh, but I don't regret regret that. Uh, it was an outstanding group of people coming up with tremendous professionals. Uh, some of the people that ran the organization in those days, uh, Frank Cashin and Harry Dalton and Lou Gorman, all went on to different areas. And uh, uh, Lou went to uh, Kansas City and took John Sherholtz with him. And uh, uh, 
you know, they developed a, a very, very good game plan over in Kansas City and, and became very, very successful there. And uh, obviously, John went on to Atlanta to becoming even more successful. So, you know, they had a lot of really, really good people running the organization and uh, very astute scouting and, and had a great game plan. And, uh, you know, I think it's been a game plan that's been pretty much uh, good grief followed uh, through the years by everybody. Strong pitching and, and uh, good defense, I think, really uh, makes of a, uh, you know, a, an organ- makes it an organization that's very, very strong. Yeah, we're still following that here in KC for sure. Um, so you went into the Marine Corps then coming up uh, before spring training 1964. I, I believe, what, six months in the service? What was that like? Well, that was uh, back in those days, obviously, during the Vietnam War, that if you weren't in college, then you were, your uh, name got put in the, uh, the lottery system or actually the draft system. And so after I signed, uh, I went and played instructional league. I signed in August. 63, and went and played instructional league and then started off in the uh, California League the next year and about midway through the season, uh, my mom called and said, hey, you just got a uh, notice from the draft board that you have to go and take a physical. Well, I had been, we had been contacted by the Marine Corps that if we needed to get into a reserve unit out there and was playing in Stockton, California, that there was openings there. So I got in, uh, in there and uh, the, uh, the, the good part was that I did not have to go to I uh, six months of active duty until right after the season was over, which would then uh, put me in for getting out about a week before spring training started. So that all kind of fit into place really well. And uh, it was an eye-opening experience. I, uh, I, I came from, you know, Southern California, kind of a, a semi-progressive state, I guess, back then. I don't know if you could call it one back then, but it was, uh, you know, kind of a, a fun place and kind of protected from all the, you know, the different uh, types of uh, cultures coming in. And, boy, in the Marine Corps, you learn a lot. You uh, Number one, you'd wind up doing is losing your own self-identity. And uh, their their uh, structure is to build you into a, a unit uh, that, you know, you all support each other. It was, uh, it was a growing up period for me, and I, I would not uh, replace that, want to replace that experience for anything. I, I grew up a lot, and... Uh, you know, fortunately for me, I didn't have to serve, but uh, I was in uh, the uh, unit where a couple of units with a lot of people that wound up going to Vietnam. And, and uh, you know, it's, uh, you know it's, it's just one of those periods of time that you know, was a real, real struggle for a lot of people. And, and through the years, I've run into uh, friends that I had been in the, in the Marines with, and we'd talk about different people, and, you know, a lot of them went over to Vietnam and and uh, unfortunately and tragically, some of them didn't come back. And, and my own brother was in the Marines. He was a uh, uh, retired as a lieutenant colonel, had two tours of duty in uh, in uh, Vietnam, and, and uh, passed away in 2004. And one of the things that we were on to his uh, death certificate was that uh, Agent Orange was a participating uh, part of his uh, of his dying. So you know, it was uh, you know kind of a Better memory of, of, of that period of time. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. That's that, you're right though. That was a tragic, tragic thing, especially the Agent Orange thing. Well, so '64, then uh, you briefly played for a guy you'd get to know pretty well, Earl Weaver, at different uh, levels. You were with him in Elmira, New York, at Double A. Then you got sent back to Stockton. Uh, you know, but what do you remember about Earl and the Elmira days? 
Well, I played with Earl several times in the minor leagues uh, before I played for him in, in Baltimore, and uh, he was a little different in the minor leagues. Uh, fiery person, uh, you know, was not, to be honest with you, he was not a really easy person to play for. Uh, one thing he did, if you played hard and, and did, you know, pretty much produce the best you could, he didn't say a whole lot. Uh, the one thing he did not like were mental mistakes. Errors he could somewhat tolerate. I wouldn't say he tolerated them completely, but... <laughs> He did not uh, care too much for mental mistakes. And, uh, you know, our organization was really good. It was hard to move up in our organization in those days. And uh, players that came from one level to another usually had a pretty good uh, grasp of the fundamentals. And uh, by the time we got to the levels where I played uh, for him, I was with him for two weeks uh, in that uh, 64 season and uh, wound up going down to uh, Stockton playing. Actually, I played in Stockton with Harry Dunlap, uh, who was a uh, later to be a coach in Kansas oh. City uh, and uh, got to be around him for a while. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it was really uh, an education. You, you knew with Earl you had to be on the top of your game all the time. It was, uh, it was uh, sometimes you almost felt like more like you were playing to uh, <laughs> stay out of Earl's uh, sight a little bit uh, than trying to beat the other ball club. But, uh, again, we had good teams. We had good pitching. Uh, we had people who were well uh, dressed in the fundamentals and, and played uh, the game the way it should be played. And I think that's why through those years, I think from 66 to uh, uh, 70 or 71, they were in four out of six World Series and, uh, you know, could yeah, point to the fact that was, uh, I guess you could say it was somewhat of a dynasty back then. Yeah, well, I mean, you spent 65 to 67 between Tri-City, Elmira, and Rochester. So you get that eventual call-up to Baltimore in 1968. So go back to that moment you were told the news. Who told you the news? Where were you at? And what was that like? Well, was in, uh, we were in the uh, playoffs, and uh, actually we were in Syracuse playing the Syracuse team for the playoffs in the International League. And... Um, uh, Billy DeMars was my manager, and he came to me and said, uh, uh, we were sitting in the clubhouse, we had just gotten beat, so we were going to be returning to Rochester, and he said, well, you've got a little more baseball going on, you're going to go to Baltimore, and uh, you know, it was just kind of like one of those things where, you know, for about 30 seconds, it didn't really sink in, and, and uh, you know, it was just one of those thrills that, uh, you know, you, you, you point to all your life, and, you know, there, there it is all of a sudden, and, and you just think, oh, wow. You know, it's really, uh, you know, a highlight at that time, I guess, of my career. Yeah, and you, and you make your big league debut on September 18th at Baltimore, and then your first big league hit, I'm assuming you probably remember the pitcher. I have it in front of me, but September 27th against Cleveland, it's a double. Can you name the pitcher? Sam McDowell. You got uh, it. I can tell you, it was, uh, he was, you know, obviously, the people that know baseball know that he was one of the hardest throwers and. and uh I remember the first two pitches uh, were two fastballs, and I think I fouled one off and uh, swung through the other one. And I happened to see the third baseman move off the line, and I thought, well, here comes another fastball. And uh, he threw a curveball, and uh, you know, I, I just happened to, I don't know, I guess I, I kept my hands back well enough that I hit a, a line drive down the third baseline, and obviously the third baseman, having moved off the, the line, had no chance to get it, and so it turned into a double, which... Uh, and it was, uh, you know, those are little sidelights you never forget for the rest of your life. Do you still have Actually, the ball? Uh, you know what? I gave it to my parents, and you know, through the years, uh, along with my great collection of baseball cards, I think it disappeared. Ah. But 
one of the, I, I happen to remember my first at bat was against Detroit, and uh, we were playing, and I came up, and the guy in front of me had hit a double with nobody out. So I, I was thinking, well, Neil, okay, I've got to hit the ball in the right field or on the right side to, to get him over to third base. And, and I, for some reason, I just happened to look out in the outfield, and had Al Kaline was playing there, and I saw him walking in about three steps, and I hit a, I, what I thought was a base hit. I hit it. Uh, line drive right at him and he came in with a shoestring catch and, and I thought oh man this is no fun and uh, you, you try to do something and you do it kind of right and the guy outsmarts you by knowing that's what you're going to do and uh, defending against it and coming out on top but uh, you know it was just uh, one of those uh, moments where you, you felt good about the way you hit the ball but the result came back not very good yeah well, so the next year, 1969, is obviously special for a number of reasons. Well, let's start with the fact that you stuck with Baltimore the entire season. And, and uh, before we talk about the playoffs, the no-hitter. So Jim Palmer, who you mentioned earlier playing with in South Dakota, he tosses a no-hitter on August 13th. And I believe you made the final out of that game, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, I, uh, we see. Uh, Jimmy lives down here where I do in Florida. And we see each other every once in a while, and he kids me about making an error in uh, – in that game earlier in the game on a, on a ground ball. And uh, I, I, I kid him. I say, well, let me ask you a question. Uh, how many no hitters did you throw in your career? And he says, one. I said, who is the shortstop? <laughs> you. And I said, well, uh, how many games did Mark Belanger play behind you as you pitch? Which he probably played most of his career with Belanger as the shortstop, probably one of the best fielding shortstops ever. And he said, well, quite a few. And I said, how many no hitters did you play behind you? And so Jimmy gets, we get a big laugh out of that. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, it was an exciting game. It was against Oakland, and and uh, you know Oakland had uh, you know pretty much the the makings of what became their dynasty in the early '70s, and they had a really good ball club. They had a lot of guys that could swing the bat, uh, put pressure on you on defense, and you know the whole game. You're just thinking, you know, this is uh, you know this ball club. Uh, you know they're capable of you know, hitting the ball hard all the time, and and uh, had a couple ground balls. Uh, Joe Rudy hit me a couple, and. Uh, you know, it was just one of those things where as the game progressed, and, and to be quite honest with you, for about six innings, I wasn't aware of it. And then all of a sudden, the seventh inning, you look out, and I think we were, I don't remember what the score was, but we were up by a couple runs. And, and uh, you know, you look at the scoreboard, and, and you see the runs, hits, and errors, and they were all zeros, and you think, oh, well, this is, you know, this is a little bit more than just we're winning ball game, and, and uh, then after that, each pitch seemed to be have a lot more on it. But uh, he got the no hitter, and we won the ball game. And, and so I, I, I take his uh, barbs every once in a while about the air, but uh, that's part of the history of Jim Palmer. He, I, what a, uh, you know, I, I played with uh, Jimmy and, and uh, for several years, and other ball players, Frank Robinson and, and George Brett. Uh, you know, just fierce, fierce, fierce competitors. And, uh, you know, you almost got to uh, – well, there's just no formula on how to beat those guys. They just keep coming at you, and that's yeah. the way Jimmy was. So would it have been a, a perfect game, or did he walk some guys too? No, I, I think he walked a, a couple during the course of the game. Okay. Uh, some of the points I, I don't quite remember completely, but I think he did. He, he threw hard, and he had that high fastball, and he was uh, tough to pick up and you know, had a good curveball also. But uh, he did have pretty good control, and uh, – but there were times when, when he needed a strikeout or wanted a strikeout, then he'd ratchet it up a couple of miles per hour. But uh, every once in a while, he kind of knew when to kind of be a little careful with a certain hitter. So I, I, I was given that, you know, that he was 
uh, yeah, a little careful. But the one thing people don't realize that year was his record was 16 and four, but he lost six. He was out six weeks with an arm injury, hmm. and which uh, you know, during six weeks, uh, out of four man rotation is probably about uh, 15, about 10, 12 other starts. So. No question in my mind he could have been a 20-game winner that year. Oh, easily, yeah. Well, so that season you guys won 109 games. You went to the ALCS, and I know you didn't play in that, but you were actually on the roster sitting in the dugout. So, I mean, how special was it for you to be on that playoff roster, and then how heartbreaking was that loss? Well, it was outstanding, uh, you know, as far as uh, being there on the on that team. I, we went into spring training, and, and uh, Frank Robinson had come over from uh, – um, Cincinnati in 1966, and, and the uh, Orioles went on to win the World Series, beating the Dodgers in that one four games to none. And, and the next year, he wound up having an injury, ran into a guy, and wound up with double vision for pretty much the next two years. And I think both those years, Baltimore came in second. And uh, then in 69, we came into spring training, and the very first day, he just hammered the ball hard. And I think right at that moment, the very first day of, of school workouts, everybody knew that we were going to be a really, really good ball club and one very tough to handle. And I remember going through spring training, though people don't really put much uh, in spring training results. We were like 20 and 5. And it kind of what it did was solidify the ball club and the fact that not only was our starting lineup really pretty good, so was the guys that were going to be on the bench. And, and uh, you know, there was not going to be a drop, tremendous drop-off in, in uh if somebody did get hurt. And, and the pitching started to come around when Mike Coyar came in and did a great job and Dave McNally and, and Jimmy and, you know, everybody that was on that club. So we kind of went through the season really with a lot of relaxed attitudes. And I, I think that uh, that helped us, you know, as far as uh, maximizing our potential and, and going into playing Minnesota in the, in the three games uh, in the playoffs. They had a pretty good ball club, but uh, we beat them the first two games in really, really close ball games, and then after winning the, the third game, we just kind of blew them out in the in the, third, the first two games, and then the third game we just kind of blew them out. So we were feeling pretty confident, but I don't think we were cocky going into New York. They're playing against New York, and and uh, you know we just got beat by some really outstanding pitching and uh, some uh, uh, tremendous plays on their part. And uh, you know you have to get big with the Mets now. I were. Uh, New York being a very uh, publicity conscious town, you know, you get it all the time about the uh, the 69, of course now the 86 cents kind of uh, taking some of that uh, focus away, but uh, you know, they're still big on the 69 months and uh, you know, they, they just had played their, they just played the uh, the kind of baseball you had to and we, we didn't, basically uh, that was pretty much it and you have to give a lot of credit to their pitching. Yeah, well, something that I read about, I've got to confirm this is true. So around that same time, so today I can't imagine this happening. you got the big contracts, you've got agents involved. But I've read that you and many of your Baltimore teammates, you formed a basketball team in the winter, and you'd play high school faculties to stay in shape. Is, is this accurate? Yeah, we did. We, and, uh, we, we, did. we played, uh, I stayed in Baltimore that winter. I'd never really lived in a, uh, uh, a cold uh, weather town so growing up in southern california you don't see the snow unless you travel up in the mountains and uh, so we did yeah and, and uh, we had a lot of guys that lived there we had uh, really some pretty good uh, athletes on that team and, and uh, so we got around to shooting around and they 
there was a uh, situation that somebody needed a fundraising thing at a at a school, so we volunteered to go play them and wound up doing it quite a bit during the winter. I'd say we probably played uh, two or three times a week uh, going out to the different schools in the community and playing against uh, faculties. And uh, you know, for the most part, we were in uh, much better shape than uh, than uh, any of the faculties. So we pretty well, uh, you know, won most of the games and, and uh, quite handily. We had Jimmy Palmer was outstanding and uh, Paul Blair was a good, uh, pretty good basketball player. Uh, I think Eddie Watt even played in college. Uh, so we, we had some, uh, you know, what I would say is good athletes and uh, love to play sports and we pretty much handle ourselves. Uh, we did get to one faculty that was a, uh, uh, I probably shouldn't say it, a Catholic school faculty, and they had a lot of young priests that were on their team, and it was quite a quite a battle. We actually wound up beating them, but I think Eddie Watt broke his hand in that game, and uh, oh, no. I think that was kind of the end of our uh, our uh, basketball uh, <laughs> organized through the ball club. Yeah, can you can you imagine social media? What would happen today if, uh, if that happened? <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh, I've seen I've seen like three things or two things happen in the last two days on uh, with the football players uh, uh, losing fingers yeah. over fireworks. That's uh, just incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so you came back to Baltimore in 1970. The first couple of months were between there and Rochester. So the trade deadline approaches June 15th of 1970, and the Royals send good old Mo Drabowski to Baltimore straight up for you. So, you know, when you got that news, where were you at, and kind of what were your emotions and thoughts on coming over to Kansas City? Well, we were we were at home, and uh, and uh, Harry Dalton called me early in the morning, probably around 9 o'clock, and, and uh, informed me of the trade. And, you know, it was really disappointing. I was just really enjoying it. Uh, being with mean, all those guys, a lot of the guys I'd come up through the minor leagues with, and it's like uh, being in a fraternity. And plus, it was pretty darn good ball club. But Baltimore was struggling with their pitching at that time. They uh, they'd had some injuries and uh, needed uh, some help in their bullpen. And uh, Mo was available, and obviously had been a big fan favorite in, in Baltimore. And uh, uh, Lou Gorman, I think, was the one that was instrumental in. Uh, me going over there, but uh, it was uh, it was kind of tough going from a team that was in first place to a team that was in the, the lower uh, part of the American League West. I don't know. If, I'm not quite sure if they were in last place, but they were at the bottom of the, of the standings. And uh, some of the guys that were over there, I knew playing against them in the minor leagues, being an expansion team, they had drafted a lot of young players uh, from the International League, and I knew a lot of them from playing against them, but... Uh, that was tough. You, you go over and uh, uh, the, the crazy thing about it, I hadn't played in about two weeks when I got there. I was uh, sitting on the bench in Baltimore and played a couple games uh, sporadically and came over and wasn't what I would say in the best of shape. But, uh, you know, it was one of those things. You get that opportunity and you better be ready for it. And I'm, I'm not positive that I was totally ready for it. I, I made a couple errors in the first game and, uh, you know, it was just uh, one, one of those things where after a couple weeks, they they knew I hadn't been playing much, so they sent me down to Omaha and went down there. And, uh, it was kind of a crazy, crazy time. I, when I got called up from Rochester, we were on the road, so I went to that Baltimore on the road and then got traded. And I still had clothes in Rochester, and I had clothes in Baltimore. had an apartment in Kansas City and got sent to Omaha when I, we were on the road. So I had four different places that I was living in, and, and uh, you know, it's not a... <laughs> It was kind of an unsettling time, and, and uh, it took a while to get things straightened out. And, and, and then I went and played winter ball in uh, 
and the Dominican Republic Batmaner. So that was kind of one of those uh, uh, interesting years. I don't know if you would say it was a great year, but uh, and I, I enjoyed my time and in, uh, coming into Kansas City the first time. Uh, great town, and you know, but, uh, to have all that happen in one year, it was a tough, tough, uh, tough year for me. Yeah, well, I found a quote where Bob Lemon says when they first got you, quote, we want to find out what Floyd can do. It would be kind of stupid to trade for him and then sit him on the bench. So, yeah, like you said, four starts and ten at-bats, and you're already back in Omaha. I mean, it was, were you frustrated right. at all about that, or did you understand? Oh, oh very much so. Well, I, I could understand it a little bit. I mean, you know, when you get traded, you you know, you're only as good as what you did yesterday. And, and um, you know, they, they were looking for uh, – Players and you know situations they they were not uh, I wouldn't say that the ball club was uh, you know a really outstanding club at that time we had a lot of young players and we're a little bit overmatched in a lot of games but uh, I didn't play well and uh, you know it was just uh, you know a quick read for them and you know it's, I needed some time to get myself back in shape and I, I feel like I did I came back up at the end of the season and I thought I played pretty well. Yeah, you, well, you played better than that. You, in the month of September, I actually have the stats. So September of 1970, you came back. You were 14 out of 33, which is a 424 average, and you had a 4-for-4 four four game uh, with two doubles against the Twins. Do you remember that day at all, or is that kind of a, too obscure of a question? No, not at all. I remember that day very well. It was, uh, I, I think, Jim Cott and uh, Louis Keon were the two pitchers. And uh, I, uh, Jim Cott lives around here, and I see him quite a bit during golf tournaments and things. But... Uh, uh, you know, it was just one of those games where I saw the ball well, and I, I felt like when I got there, I'd been playing every day in Omaha and came back up and uh, had an opportunity to play right away, so it wasn't like I missed any time. And, you know, I felt like that was, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a 400 hitter, but I, I felt like that was a better uh, realization of, of what kind of a player I was. And, and uh, you know, I felt like I gained a little bit of, little bit of respect from uh, what I did at that time, so as opposed to my first four games in Kansas City. So I felt good about it, and, uh, you know, I felt like I could compete at that level. And, you know, so, you know, from there I went to winter ball, and I thought I played very well in winter ball. Uh, that's a different story and a longer trek, but, uh, you know, it uh, was another one of those experiences where I think every player that plays professionally should uh, give it a shot and, and go down and play in those countries. Where did you play at that at that time? I, I played in the Dominican Republic. I, I, I lived in a, a little town called San Pedro, which uh, at one time was called the, uh, the shortstop uh, college of uh, minor league baseball. They had shortstops coming out of there right and left uh, huh. that were native shortstops. But a uh, little town of San Pedro, and uh, you know, it was there in 1970 and, and was uh, you know, a real growing experience. You know, you go down there and uh, you see the uh, poverty. You live, the town I lived in was a very, very poor town. Uh, you know, just uh, the, the homes that these people lived in, and, and some of them still do. I go down quite a bit uh, with our. We have a, an academy down there, and I get to go down and spend time in the, in the Dominican Republic every year. And, and uh, you know, there's still still a lot of poverty. It's it's grown quite a bit. Uh, you know, things have turned around a little bit, uh, but uh, you know, it's just uh, you know a thing where you know a lot of people that are. I guess you could say maybe unhappy with the way things are going. Uh, you know, they could go live in a in a another country or a country that's uh, more along the lines of a third world country. I think uh, I thoughts of what we have here at home are a little bit different. At least they were, especially in, in those days, with a lot of uh, 
people protesting the colleges. Uh, we had Kent State at that time, and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it was really kind of a uh, a mixture of uh, you know some good, some bad, and you know a lot of a lot of people questioning and trying to find themselves in our country and you know where our country was going. And you know, it was just uh, it was a real growing experience for me. I had a lot of a lot better feelings about our country uh, after seeing that down there and what uh, people are exposed to there. Uh, you know, it's just uh, it's incredible the the different uh, the difference in lifestyles. Who were some of the, uh, you know, your early Royals teammates that when you first came over in Omaha and Casey, who were some of the guys you got along with well and became friends with? Well, uh, when I came back over, I had uh, Buck Martinez and Tom Bergmeier were my roommates, uh, Jim Rooker and Dick Drago. And these are guys that I had played against in, uh, in the International League. Uh, Roger Nelson was on the team. I played with him at, uh, in Baltimore. Uh, oh, golly, Joe Keogh, you know, just a... Uh, John Mayberry eventually came over. I played against him in uh, in the uh, American Association, uh, Amos Otis. You know, they slowly built uh, the ball club, but uh, those were some of the guys. Lou Pinello was probably the, uh, the most interesting and uh, uh, fun-loving person. Uh, was my roommate for a couple of years when we'd go on the road. And, and uh, you know, just another one of those tremendously competitive people that, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, every time you do something, whether it's playing cards, playing uh uh, golf or whatever you play, you're in there for a battle. It's not just to have fun. It's uh, <laughs> to see who wins, and uh, you know and that's what makes him. He's not. I wouldn't say he was the most talented person that uh, ever played, but he's one of those that got a hundred percent out of his ability. And, and uh, you know, when you when you go into a ball game and you wanted somebody to come up in the eighth or ninth inning with that go ahead run on base, he would be one of my people I'd pick. Yeah. Uh, so 1971, you're both Omaha and Kansas City. You got a chance to play every day in KC during the month of September that year. You guys finished above 500 that year, 85 and 76 and 71. And then, you know, so what do you remember about that year? And then another question is, you know, what was it like playing at Municipal Stadium back then? Well, playing there it was, you know, George Thomas, the groundskeeper, it was always the best uh, playing surface in, in uh, uh in baseball, uh, it was just such a treat to go out there every day and know you're on a on a court or on a field that uh, was going to be impeccable throughout most of the game. And uh, you know that was great. It was a nice uh, surface. I wouldn't say the stadium was the best stadium. Uh, it had been around for quite a while, and, and uh, was showing it. The clubhouse was small. Uh, you know, really, when you when you look at it, you and you think back at some of the places now to get into a clubhouse, you have to go through tunnels and security and everything there the entrance to the clubhouse was right off the street and you go out there and you know people were walking by that were just walking to their homes from the bus stop and you know they're right outside the ballpark so it was totally different than, than what uh, what you have today um you know it was fun uh you know there wasn't uh you know crowds were not very not very big and and uh you know we at, at times struggled as a team so i, I wouldn't say that the uh, the enthusiasm was uh, really rock solid in those days. Uh, you know, we we played hard and uh, did the best. And, uh, you know, we slowly started to, to build a little bit. Uh, that year showed that we could compete a little bit, and that was, what, 1971? Yep. Two years after after uh, uh, expansion, and I think that was probably one of the quickest turnarounds, I think, of, of any ball club at that time. Uh, 72 was a little bit different. Uh, you know, it was kind of the same thing as, as 71, but uh, 
slowly as, as we got through the season in 72. Uh, there were some young kids that were coming up and, and starting to get some experience and uh, starting to get together to form uh, some of those ball clubs that would eventually explode in the, in the late 70s. Yeah, so you, well, you mentioned 72. That'd be the last year uh, for Bob Lemon managing the Royals. You know, talk about him and how did you like playing for him? Bob, Bob was a great guy to play for. I mean, he just he left you alone and let you play, and uh, you know he, uh, you know he didn't he didn't interfere. He, he, and you know, as a tactician, I don't know if he was any different than than most managers. And, and uh, but he was very very easy to play for. Uh, he he would not he would not accept uh, not hustling, and I think that was really uh, one of the things that he would really stress to the players that you know, you're playing hard all the time and. Uh, you know, it just uh, was, you know, he was a good guy to play for. Uh, around that time, Omaha was doing really well, too, you know, which makes sense with all the good players coming up. I think you guys won a couple American Association titles. You, of course, weren't really totally a part of that. You were up and down all the time. But, you know, playing in Omaha and playing at Rosenblatt Stadium, what sticks out about that? Well, I was up and down uh, for about three years. I, in fact, in 70, we wound up winning the American Association, and then we wound up going on and playing in what at that time was called the the uh, Little World Series, and uh, we played Syracuse in uh, in the International League, and and uh, you know it was just uh, you know starting to get that uh, feeling of winning. Uh, uh, Rosenblatt Stadium was a, was a fun stadium. <laughs> the, uh, the crazy thing is now that it's it's no longer there. We we used to have to go on the road for like 19 days so they could play the College World Series. And, you know, you just say, oh boy, this isn't going to be. You know, it's in June when the when the uh, College World Series was going on, but. Uh, you know, it was good. Uh, it was a kind of a tough ballpark. It was up on the top of a hill, and behind it, there was really no background. So, in the early innings of the game, you had the twilight that was kind of, or you know, made picking up the the ball a little bit more difficult than later in the game. But uh, you know, the fans were good. Again, not uh, you know, minor league baseball was not a not a huge draw as it is now. You go to some of the parts now, and they draw they draw. Seven, six, seven, eight, nine thousand people. Uh, you know, shoot, that was the some of some of the major league ball games back in those days. And uh, you know, so I, I think uh, you know it was uh, historic. Uh, it was around for a while. I went back uh, when the the last year that they were there was going to be the 40th year of the uh, 1970 team where we won the uh, the championship. And it was uh, they were celebrating that as part of the closing. Uh, of Rosenblatt Stadium, getting ready for the uh, the two separate stadiums now. So it was kind of neat. It was kind of neat to go back and see guys that had been through those years, and you know, see where they are now, and and uh, see the changes, and you know, catch up with them and all their families and everything. It was, you know, it was a lot of fun. Now, it was around that time, so going back to Kansas City, you're up here, and I don't know, I'm assuming this is only in the offseason, but you were attending UMKC, and you got your psychology degree there. When, when did you start taking classes at UMKC, and how was that? Well, I, actually, it was that year I, I did. Uh, uh, I wish I could say I got my degree, but I did not. I, I uh, went there for a semester. Uh, I had met my uh, future wife the winter before, and she was uh, going to school there, and, and uh so I just thought, well, you know what? I've, I've, you know, during the winter, I've got don't have a lot to do. I'll stick around here and and uh, wound up uh, going to school there. And I really I enjoyed it. It was neat. It was uh, I lived in a we lived in an apartment complex about two blocks from the from the college. So it was a lot of fun to go there and you know kind of a different school than UCLA and different atmosphere. But uh, you know at at that point I was a lot more 
I guess you could say, more inclined to be a student and uh, really into studying and learning. And, and uh, basically, I'd grown up a little bit. I was no longer the little the little baseball player that I was when I went to UCLA. Yeah, what uh, were you know some of your classmates like? Oh my gosh, there's a big leaguer in this class, or did you kind of just you know lay low? <laughs> well, I, I tried to tried to lay low. There were a couple uh, classes I had where people knew uh, what I did, and uh, a couple of the teachers. You know, I, I got a late start because the season went on into the school year at the start of the school year, so I had to go into uh, most of my classes and explain why I'd be gone for like seven, eight, nine days at a time, and. You know, they, you know, as, you know, even though we didn't have uh, the uh, following that they have now, um, they were still sports fans. Uh, the Chiefs had been doing well, and, you know, that kind of uh, made uh, sports, uh, you know, kind of front page on the, uh, some of it. So they, they, were, they were enthusiastic about it, but they, I think they respected the fact that I didn't want it to be brought into being a, a distraction in the classroom. But a couple times they would ask me things uh, Relating to uh, baseball in relation to the subjects that we were talking about. Hmm. Well, and, and uh, this is a good question then for you. So on that same topic, so 1967, going away back, I read that the the Sporting News did an article on you, and you said you found a new technique for using your subconscious power from a book you'd read. Talk more about that. Well, that was uh, a book written by uh, Dr. Maxwell Maltz called Psycho Cybernetics, and. Uh, you know, it was one of the first books. He was a plastic surgeon out in Hollywood, and uh, you know, being out in Hollywood, a lot of people would come in trying to uh, improve on their looks, uh, whether it was a, uh, a movie star, movie actress, or a salesman. You know, they would think that you know they're not they're not physically attractive, and uh, so they would have uh, surgery to fix their nose, fix their ears, chin, whatever, whatever it might be, or maybe other parts of their bodies. But anyway, they. Uh, <laughs> would go through these plastic surgeries, and, and in his mind, they'd come out not looking like they changed very much, but in their mind, they had changed, so they, uh, you know, some of them became very successful after that, and so he started really delving into that aspect of it, thinking that, you know, realizing that, you know, it's not really what you look like, it's what you think you are, it's what you think you look like, and so he, he wrote this book on uh, how to, uh, I guess in my own words, how to train your mind to be uh, to promote the success that you're capable of achieving, and you know it's basically a, a series of uh, uh, I don't want to say hypnosis, but uh, you, you, you can use hypnosis in it. But anyway, the the, the part of it was that uh, you know that you work on your your thought process, and you know there's no no other activity in anywhere in the world. I think that. You know, if you fail 70% of the time, you're still a pretty good person. In fact, you're not a pretty good person. You're probably in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> right. Whereas, you know, if you if you succeed 25% of the time, you're a pretty good ball player. And right. So anyway, you have to you have to learn how to handle the uh, the negative parts of it. And, you know, that's I think that's the hardest part. And when you have repeated failure like that, it's easy to get caught up in the negativity. And uh, really, it, it came down to, uh, you know, you, you, you surround yourself with people that are you know, have positive thoughts and they're capable of, uh, you know, maintaining that on a consistent basis. And, uh, you know, that was really, uh, I think, what spurred me to really get uh, involved in it. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, read it and spent uh, a whole winter really trying to practice it. And, 
you know, it, it really did give me a different perspective on on my ability to play and, and uh, you know to, how to you know get the most out of my ability. And one other question off the field in Kansas City. So, you know, the famous song, they got some pretty little women, and I'm going to get me one. And you did. You met your wife, Melody, here. How would you guys meet, and, uh, you know, how did you guys like living in Kansas City in those days? Oh, we loved it. You know, it was, uh, we were living in the same uh, apartment complex, and, uh, you know, with my travels, you know, I was never around. And I uh, had gone through the, you know, the airport, and we were always in the airport in the coffee shop, and, and uh, there was a, a girl that worked in there, and she asked me, oh, you know, where do you guys live? And I told her we live in these certain apartments in Kansas City. And she said, oh, I have a girlfriend that lives there. And she told me her name, and, uh, and I said, she told me her name was Melody, and, but, you know, it's a very uh, different name, so stuck in my mind. But, I, you know, traveling and all that, I never really followed up on it and you know, kind of put it out of my mind at that point in time. So during the winter, uh, a buddy of mine that uh, went out and played basketball a lot, we were out playing basketball, coming back from uh, a day of playing basketball, and these girls were walking back from school. And uh, we started talking and uh, asked on what her name was, and she said, oh, it's Melody. And I said, oh, you're Melody Parkinson. And she looked at me like, well, how would you know that? <laughs> anyway, so uh, it was kind of a great line. But anyway, uh, uh, so and then from there, we just started dating, and, uh, you know, we just, uh, things worked out. And, you know, it's... Uh, she didn't know anything about baseball. She didn't, wasn't really a sports person, but her dad was a real fanatic. He had season tickets for the Chiefs, and uh, he, was, uh, he was probably my biggest uh, fan uh, in that family at that time because uh, he was a real, real sports nut and knew of me and knew the, you know, the, you know, about sports. And she kind of has learned through the years. She's been a great wife through uh, through the years. We've been married uh, forty. That's right. Forty-two years, forty-three this uh, this winter. But uh, we have three children. Uh, she's done a fantastic job raising our children. Uh, she had an opportunity to go ahead and, and pursue her own career in, in psychology, and uh, we uh, we made the decision that uh, she would stay and raise the children, and we'd go through the years. And uh, you know, it was a long struggle for years of. Uh, uh, you know, just uh, making ends meet, I guess you could say, and and uh, eventually, uh, you know, things started to get better. And uh, working for the Mets, we've had a a long reign here, and living in Port St. Lucie, and you know, we feel good about our kids and where they're at, and the fact that now we're able to travel and spend time in other places. So, you know, it's been a we've been blessed. We've been blessed with uh, you know having the, the opportunity to to do the things now that we want to do. And, uh, be a part of our kids' lives. What a great story! That that's awesome. Uh, 1973. Then it's another special year for you back in the field now. So entire summer in KC, you open up the brand new ballpark. You have Jack McKeon now, and you guys went 88 and 74, finishing in second place. So you know, what do you remember about uh, playing for Jack and then opening that park that year? Well, it was good. I, I played for Jack quite a bit in, the, in Omaha, and, and uh, when he. At the end of the 72 season, he came up and everybody knew that uh, Bob was not going to be rehired. And, and so we we're kind of looking forward to it. Uh, Jack had a lot of success in Omaha with, with the teams there. We had a real uh, influx of, of young players. Uh, Steve Busby, Paul Splitorf, uh, you know, just uh, some players that uh, were really getting ready to, to make their mark. Uh, Freddie Potek came over with Cookie Rojas in the middle of the infield. And, uh, you know, it just came down to, you know, we had some good players that uh, knew how to play the game and, and 
played to win. We we really I think went out there. They they got John Mayberry in a trade, um, solidified the first base. Uh, we had a pretty good infield, and and uh, and people don't realize how good John was the first baseman. That uh, he uh, uh, you know had great hands. Uh, you know, being as big as he was, he had a pretty good reach, and and uh, you know it was just one of those uh, you know things where where he maybe. Maybe put the uh, ball club together. Amos Otis came over, so it was, came out to be a, a pretty, pretty good ball club on the field. And the pitching was starting to come around. And, and Jack was a good manager. He, he uh, got the guys to play again. Another manager that let you go out and play and didn't interfere. Uh, for me, I, I was a utility infielder, and, and uh, during spring training that year, I spent a lot of time with Charlie Lyle. Charlie had been over in Baltimore. Uh, when I was there, and then uh, he moved on to Oakland, and then when I came over to Kansas City. Uh, Lou Gorman, I think, was very instrumental in getting him to come over and be the hitting coach there for a year or two. And, and uh, he was instrumental in me really understanding a lot about hitting. Unfortunately, it was a little late in my career. It did help me that year, but uh, you know, it helped me down the road as a manager in the minor leagues and, and uh, an instructor. And you know, but uh, he was uh, an outstanding hitting coach, probably the very first hitting coach to really really uh, use the mechanics of the game and study them and, and really uh, being able to explain what they were on a, uh, a basis where everybody could understand it. I know he was very instrumental with uh, Lou, uh, with uh, Lou Pinella and, and uh, George Brett and Hal McRae and you know, a lot of the guys there in Kansas City for a couple of years. So, uh, you, know, it's, uh, you know, it was just kind of a, a lot of pieces coming together. John Sherholtz was... Uh, Started to take a, a bigger active role in the minor leagues. He's a tremendous, tremendous uh, baseball person, and uh, you know, I think at some point in time we'll probably wind up being in the Hall of Fame. Uh, yeah, you know, he's just uh, you know, the, I, I always tell the story that my first year in spring training, we had uh, uh, Harry Dalton was the farm director, and Lou Dorman was the assistant farm director, uh, and. Uh, Kirk Robinson was uh, one of the guys, along with John Sherholz, that worked in the uh, the minor league clubhouse. Uh, you know, kind of keeping things straight, passing out towels and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, he just went from being right from uh, the bottom rung on the ladder to the very top rung on the ladder. So yeah, it's quite a quite a great story uh, uh, with him. But uh, he was, you know, they were just starting to put together. They had a really good scouting department too. I think that that was uh, bringing in kids. Uh, you know, George came in as a second or third round draft choice, uh, drafted Jamie Quirk and, uh, you know, some other people that came along the lines, Willie Wilson. And, uh, you know, they, they, they kind of built a ball club that was made for that ballpark. They had the speed. They had guys that could run. And, and uh, you know, we were slowly in 73, slowly starting to put some of that stuff together. Yeah, and you get, you know, eventually Frank from the academy. So, yeah, they were really – had interesting ways of getting guys in. Now, I mean, 73 that year, you had a 3-for-3 three three day. I'm uh, This is completely random, but 3-for-3 three three in the second game of a doubleheader against Texas. You had an RBI and two runs scored. That was during a 10-game hitting streak you had. Uh, you had 20 consecutive airless games that year as well. Any of that, you know, is that, is that too random, or do you remember any of that? <laughs> uh, bits and pieces of it, you know. I yeah. think that, uh, that hitting streak probably took me about 50 days to I, I, <laughs> I tell people that, I was on I was on par with uh, Joe DiMaggio. It's just uh, <laughs> unfortunately it was only like ten days. But, yeah. uh, anyway, no, you know yeah. it was uh, you know it was 
a fun time. We we really uh, you know we just were playing good baseball. Uh, you know, I think there was one stretch there where Oakland came in to play us, and we were leading the the first game of the series, and they came back. I think we were up by a couple runs, and they came back and scored like. Uh, four or five runs in the ninth inning, which they were quite apt to do. Actually, I think that was the last game, and that would have put us only a couple games out of first. Then they went to New York, and they won four games in New York against the Yankees, where they scored runs late in the ball game every game. I mean, they just, you know, they they were getting beaten, and boom, they scored four runs and won the game. The next night, they scored five runs. You know, and then, you know, things had turned around a little bit during that period of time. That was like a five or six game stretch where they, all of a sudden opened up a, a seven-game, eight-game lead. Uh, you know, who knows what might have happened, but they had a tremendous ball club. But uh, I think we battled. We had, I know we battled them uh, both during the game and, well, during the game in several ways. We had probably had five or six uh, brawls with them during that season. Uh, they were very, very competitive and uh, short-tempered, and I guess we had a few guys that were probably in the same mold. But, uh, you, know, it was, uh, you know, every game was a struggle. Every game was a... Uh, you know, fierce battle, and, and uh, it was, you know, as, as they proved, they went on for two or three years of being a dynamic, uh, great ball club, uh, winning uh, a couple World Series and being in three in a row. Yeah, and that was the first year of the El Segundo connection, George Brett debuts. You know, what do you remember about a young George Brett? Well, I, you know, knowing George and uh, that uh, he was going to be the, uh, the, the third baseman there eventually. Uh, he uh, he came up and uh, and we went together for a couple road trips. Uh, he came in and I think uh, I, I don't think he started the game, but his first game he came in in the middle of the game, and I was playing shortstop and he was playing third and uh, you know I looked over at him and he laughed and he, uh, I said, "Boy, John Stevenson would really be proud right now." John Stevenson was our high school coach, which we both stayed very very close to through the years and was pretty much a uh, legend in Southern California and actually throughout the United States in his own right. Uh, he was there for 50 years at El Segundo and uh, won over a thousand games and, uh, you know, was just, uh, you know, a really outstanding teacher and, and uh, coach and mentor. And, and uh, so we both stayed very close to him and, you know, still having a lot of friends in El Segundo. But it was, it was a neat thing, you know, to see two guys from a little tiny neighborhood in uh, El Segundo winding up playing side by side on the same uh, in the same ball game. El Segundo is like a few miles from the airport there, LAX, right? Isn't that pretty close? Well, we, you know, I always tell people that when you land at LA International, your left wing tips in El Segundo. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, it's right there. It's uh, very very close, and uh, you know, it, uh, you know, it's it's kind of neat. In fact, when I lived there, you know, it was kind of rough when you go in there and you land there, and your cab pulls up and. I learned you had to load your bags in the cab first before you told them where you wanted to go. <laughs> They'd sit there and wait two hours in line to get a fare, thinking they're going to go to downtown L.A. and make about 50 bucks, and they're going to go to El Segundo, and it's going to be like $3. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, but, uh, no, it's, it was a great. People there are proud of the, uh, of the uh, sports heritage. I know there are other people that have gone on and done, done other great things, and you know, it's not all about sports, but... Uh, you know, the, there's a was a little uh, restaurant bar that was right at the edge of El Segundo, right near the airport. And uh, there were some times when I would fly in and make a change there and have a, maybe an hour or two hours. I'd run over it, and the guy that owned it, I went to high school with, and we were in the same class, and, uh, you know, catch up on everybody. And 
you know, there would be times when I'd be out on the road somewhere and I'd give him a call late at night and say, hey, tell me what's going on, you know. So, you know, everybody, uh, I guess you could say everybody knew everybody's business, but uh, it was neat because it was, uh, you know, I'd see the buddies of mine from then. I maybe haven't seen them for like 10 years. And, you know, it's like we were together last weekend all the time. So it's really uh, a close-knit community and, you know, in the in the community, kids have bought their parents' houses and built them up, and a lot of them are even grandchildren are buying uh, the kids that I went to high school with buying their parents' hmm. uh, houses. So you know, it's it's kind of one of those things where it's just a uh, you know a small town that can't grow and, and uh, hasn't grown, and I would say probably a fourth of the residents are people that uh, have lived there probably for, for 40, 50 years. That's great. I'll have to check it out. I always drive by the signs in L.A. I'm like, oh, there we go. That's where they're from. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's, you know, and, and the thing about it was we were, the school was only about a thousand students. So it was like everybody had to, all the guys that were athletes had to play almost all the sports. So to <laughs> have teams, and, and they were very, very successful playing against uh, bigger and older schools and, uh, you know, schools with a lot more students. And when I played, uh, being a thousand student, we play against three and four thousand student schools, which now they keep them broken down into uh, uh, school size. And uh, you know, but we competed and we competed very well. And uh, hey, and, uh, in our little neighborhood, we had uh, you know Olympic swimming champions, uh, <laughs> basketball, football, baseball, uh, and a variety of other sports. I'm sure uh, you know great, great uh, players and. You know, People that uh, were really proud of the, the heritage you had in that area. Yeah. Well, 1974, then, your last year in the big leagues. You were here from April 25th to June 25th. Now, you probably know this, but you got a hit in your final major league at bat, which is kind of cool. You pinch hit for Cookie Rojas May 29th to 74 against Baltimore, of all teams. You get a hit that last at bat, and then uh, you'd finish out 74 in Omaha, came back as a player coach in, in 75 for Omaha. I mean, did you know at the, at the end of, you know, when you got sent down in June of 74 and didn't get that September call, did you know pretty much it was over at that point? Well, I, I, you know, I kind of had an idea. It might have been over with uh, Kansas City. Uh, you know, they, they never really said anything why or why not or whatever. But, uh, you know, they had uh, some young players, uh, had, uh, Frank White and, uh, you know, a couple other players that they, Rupert Jones, I think, was coming along at that time. And, and uh, UL Washington was in the in the uh, background getting ready to move up. So they knew they were going to go with a, a younger younger probably faster ball club the next year. Uh, they brought in Whitey Herzog eventually, and his, his trademark was the speed and uh, uh, that type of ball game. And, you know, they, they I think they were gearing towards it. They did ask me if I wanted to be a player coach in uh, Omaha, and Billy Gardner was the manager. And, you know, he gave me a lot of lateral ability to do some things that I wanted to do. And uh, Jamie Cork was on that team, uh, I got to spend a lot of time with him, and uh, you know, I, you know, feel like I had a little mark to help them go to the next level. And uh, certainly, he got to Kansas City and had a very prolonged career in, in the major leagues. And uh, I think he's still coaching at the big league level. So you know, it was uh, you know, kind of one of those things where you know it's coming, and, and you just really uh, uh, you know, you don't like to say it, but it's goodness. You have to look at reality sometimes. 
Yeah. Well, after that, you end up going, like you said, to Seattle and New York, 77 to 85. You're in the Mariners organization. I had two questions about the Mariners. First of all, your first gig is Bellingham in, uh, in uh, 1977. You've got an 18-year-old Dave Henderson who'd go on to a great career. I think you had him the next year or something, too. But, I mean, you know, what do you remember about a young Dave Henderson? Dave was a tremendously athletic, gifted guy, big, strong kid, uh, really had a lot of tools, good arm, plus arm, plus speed power uh, hit the ball i think he hit over 300 which is rare for a uh, a young kid to come into pro ball and, and rookie and play it was really kind of an interesting because there was uh an independent team there in portland uh, uh the portland mavericks and they were a bunch of guys that had played professionally not i wouldn't say played very long uh, but they uh uh would you know had guys that had played ball and uh, played college ball and stuff like that dave henderson was really talented really uh outstanding player. I remember one day this Portland team had Jim Bouton on their team who was oh, yeah. throwing a knuckleball and, and uh, you know, was trying to make a little bit of a comeback there. Uh, the, the stadium in Portland is down below street level and it's, uh, it's now where they play on their soccer their soccer team. But the, the top part of the, the grandstand was basically uh, street level high and then you had the light tower up above it, and one day we're there in Bowden's pitching, and I thought to myself, and I told my coach, I said, you know what, I'd love to see him hit his best bolt over that fence in left field. I mean, like three pitches later, he hit a knuckleball. <laughs> I, I swear it went over the light tower. I don't know if it's quite possible for it to do that, but it sure looked like it did, and, and uh, I mean, it was crushed, and, and uh, you know, certainly it was uh, you know, a monumental blast for anybody, let alone an 18-year-old kid. Uh, and I had the, the next year in the California League, and you know the league was a little fast. Uh, it was tough to be a 19-year-old stepping into uh, California League. But uh, a couple of years later, I was uh, coaching down in Venezuela, and he was on the team. We wound up winning the uh, Caribbean World Series, and, and he played on that team. But, uh, by then, he made his, his uh, first mark in the big leagues, and went on to have a really, really good career. Uh, I think his knees and kind of took some of uh, the overall ability from him uh, as the years went by, but uh, tremendous athlete, great, great kid, too. I'm just uh, really humble, very, I would say shy, but he was a little shy in the first couple of years, but uh, just a great kid to have on the ball club. Yeah, 1981. i got to ask you, the Lynn Sailors. So you've never pitched ever professionally, and you are a manager. It's been six years since you've last played. How in the heck do you end up throwing four innings that year? Well, we were. that was one of those funny situations. Back in Seattle in those days, they had all their managers and coaches sign a, uh, a dollar contract as a player just in case <laughs> things came up where you had to uh, – activate yourself in fact i actually it was more for the coaches on the team because we had what were really considered player coaches and that they could they were guys that had been playing within the last year or two and, and had the physical ability to still get out and play if need be whenever you'd have a call up and couldn't get a player there in time to take his place so we had uh, uh to sign this contract well we never got the dollar number one and uh, <laughs> anyway so we're playing and, and uh we had gotten to a stretch where we'd have to, had to use our bullpen quite a bit and uh, really didn't have uh, much pitching. In fact, I had activated my pitching coach to pitch, and he had pitched like two days before and had thrown a seven-inning shutout in a, in a doubleheader. So we were at a point where we had nobody. So 
uh, my starting pitcher, uh, I needed for him to go like seven innings. I could fill an inning at the end of the game, and, and uh, he wound up getting shelled in the in the third inning and the fourth inning. He couldn't get anybody out, so I had to take him out. And the guy that I brought in, uh, he just he, he could only pitch an inning. So they finished out the uh, the fourth inning, and I wound. I told the other teams, man, we're down like eighteen to one, so there's no way we're going to come back. So I told the other team's manager and I told the umpire, I said, you know what, I'm not active, but I, I do have a signed contract as a, uh, uh, that we can put on. And I said, I'm going to pitch. If you want to call the game and forfeit it now, go ahead. But I'm going to pitch. And they, the other manager, he's a good friend of mine, he said, I don't care. You go ahead and uh, pitch. Let's see what you got. <laughs> and uh, so they he, he ran his guys into outs knowing that uh, I'd you know, have them take a short lead and try to steal, and you know our guys would throw them out just to just to speed up the ball game a little bit. And my guys knew they weren't trying to run the score up or anything, but uh, you know they I threw strikes and uh, they hit line drives right at people. So it was kind of like uh, you know one of those things where you know I think the uh, the actual playing of the game was a little different than what the statistics might look like. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great story too. Now, yeah. one of my uh, I used to live in North Carolina, so one of my favorite areas of the country is the whole where the Appy League is at. So, nineteen eighty eight, let's fast forward to the Kingsport Mets and the Appy League Championship. You guys took him to that. Uh, you managed there. You had a couple future Royals there: Alberto Castillo and Archie Corbin. You know what sticks out about the Appy League and that team in Kingsport? Well, the, when I went over to New York, they uh, the uh, farm director there wanted me to become the field coordinator, but they hadn't set up a uh, uh, field coordinator position yet. And uh, so they asked me to manage the, uh, the Appy League team uh, there in, in Kingsport. And I, I did it in 87. And in 88, uh, you know, we went back. We, we didn't have a lower-level team, so we were playing 17- and 18-year-olds in the Appy League. And uh, it was a much older, more experienced-level team, a lot of college players and uh, we got killed that first year, and then the next year I went back with basically the same group of guys. They were still the youngest team in the league, but uh, had that one year of experience, and we wound up did a great job. Uh, Alberto Castillo, funny story about Alberto. He signed and came, and he was like, uh, they said he was 17. I think he was more like 16, but he showed up. He had this little tiny bag that he was carrying with him, and uh, so when he got there, we said, well, uh, Actually, we were working out on the field when they brought him in from the airport, and he had pants that were probably six inches too short. Huh. He was wearing very, very uh, from an impoverished family in, in uh, the Dominican Republic, and he came in and, and uh, set his bag down. And I said, "Well, uh, you know, what are they, they going to bring the rest of your luggage from the uh, airport?" And he said, well, "You know, I, I spoke enough Spanish to be able to, to communicate with him." And, and he said, "No," he said, "This is it." I said, what? And uh, I said, well, where's your baseball stuff? I said, it's in there. I mean, he had probably 10 items of anything in there. He had a pair of baseball shoes and a glove, and that was it. And then he had, uh, you know, another pair of pants and a couple shirts and some toiletries, and that was it. So anyway, it was really, I mean, he showed up with basically nothing. But uh, we had uh, families that kept the kids. And so the family that uh, came to pick him up that day, they took him immediately to uh, stores and bought clothes, and you know it was kind of neat. And, and uh, one of the one of the neat things to see him finally get to the big leagues and uh, uh, you know get a few years in and, and to make some money in the game. And, and uh, you know he did very well in winter ball. He's actually a, 
one of our coaches down at our academy down in the Dominican Republic. Oh. Doing a very good job down there. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he's still doing good. Yeah. That's good. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Great kid. So 2001, 2004, major league level, you're back with the Mets. Were you bench coach or third base coach? Or I can never find that out. What were you doing then? Uh, bench, co- bench coach and then field coach uh, for, for uh, Bobby Valentine in 2001 and Art Howe in 2004. Ooh, a couple of great managers, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. We... Very cool. Well, well, last three questions for you, and thanks so much for all your time today. It's been a great interview. Sure. Last, last three things are going back to the Royals days then. So if you, if you had to pick one single favorite moment in a Royals uniform, what would you choose? <laughs> That's a good one. That's uh... a... <laughs> Um, I don't know. It's you know, it's not like I had a uh, a highlight career there. I'd say probably as a was getting the four hits that day in Minnesota was probably my highlight as a uh, as a uh, a player. Uh, probably you know playing with George Brett. You know, as I played with two uh, Hall of Fame third basemen and Brooks Robinson in Baltimore and and George Brett in Kansas City. You know, that's uh, you know you. When you're around people like that, it's you know it's it's uh, it's a really neat feeling to know that you were playing with those kind of those players and uh, saw part of their career. Now, do you keep in touch with any of your old Royals teammates anymore? Uh, I see a couple of them, uh, you know, through the years. Um, like I say, in the uh, uh, we had a 40th reunion of the '70 team in, in Omaha. Uh, and I'll occasionally see George at different events. Uh, Benny Papke, I've stayed in touch with with him through the years. He played a little bit in Kansas City in 71, 72, and, and through those years. Who was that? Uh, uh, Denny Papke. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, gotcha. And uh, occasionally, uh, well, actually, I, I, I did not see John, but we had his son on our big league team, uh, John Mayberry Jr. Uh, but, you know, you, you kind of get involved in baseball and you, you travel and, you know, raising a family, you don't uh, – Stay as close to it. I, I get a lot of emails from Mike Hedlund. We stay a little bit uh, in touch through them, uh, through him. Uh, and and I, I saw him and I played golf with him at our 40th reunion. It was Paul Splodorf. And, uh, and I'm sad to hear of him passing a, uh, a couple of years later. And uh, uh, a tremendous person and, and a great competitor on the mound. Just uh, a great individual. He and his boss, Lynn. Yeah, Split made himself into a great broadcaster too. Those last, you know, twenty years, self-made. It was pretty impressive. Right, right. Very, um, uh, very intelligent person, and, and uh, you know, very introspective in the game, and you know, just uh, you know, it was a pleasure to be around him through those years in Omaha and in uh, Kansas City. Well, final question for you. You know, in summary, what would you like to say to all the Royals fans listening right now? Well, I, I think that, you know, they've been fantastic fans through the years, uh, you know, and even in the years when we struggled a little bit and, you know, they just, uh, we're really, the, uh, the players enjoy it. They enjoy playing there. And now that they're really getting, uh, quite a, quite a name for themselves back, uh, back this year after so many years and that they've stuck in the ball club and, you know, it's, it's, uh, worthwhile. Enjoy it. You know, it's one of those things where, you know, you look at Kansas City and you look at Houston and, you know, they struggled for the last eight, nine, ten years, uh, you know, now they're in first place and, and having some great success. But uh, you know, as as with anything uh, in sports, it can turn quickly. So enjoy enjoy it while you got it going for you. You know, with with the free agency and players moving on, you know, key elements. Uh, you know, sometimes will be there for a couple of years, and then they won't. You just hope you can uh, restock and reload, but uh, it doesn't always work that way. 
Absolutely. Well, we, we wish you you know success with the Mets. We hope the Mets, you know, hopefully for a Royals Mets World Series one of these days and, and continued uh, success for you, continued health for you and your family. And, you know, thanks so much for your time and hope to see you back in Kansas City one of these days. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed my years there. And, uh, you know, it's uh, been a, uh, a part of my life, a big part of my life, uh, meeting my wife there and uh, actually having our first son, our first child born there in Kansas City. So, you know, it will always be, uh, you know, a special place. Absolutely. Thanks so much and take care. All right, Dave. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.